Thank you, Chad and Michael, for leading us in worship. Wonderful songs and a way for God to invite us into his presence today. I wanted to uh, make one other announcement that Cliff forgot to make. That's it. Uh, Bobby Brown, I think today you brought some salsa. Yes? Okay, so Bobby's brought salsa, and you know that uh, she and Charlie, over the years, they've made the salsa, they've sold it, they've funded mission trips, etc., and uh, so she's brought some today, and she's selling it. You can get it in the back on the way out, and then some of the proceeds from that, are, I think, are going to J.D. Bennett, one of our missionaries uh, down in Mexico, so... Latin America, Latin America, <laughs> South, so can't keep track of everyone, good, uh, that was a test, good job, that's awesome, so that's right, so they're in Spain, so thanks Bobby, and you can get that on the way out in the back, um, well Cliff's not preaching here today, but he is preaching, so periodically uh, we do uh, exchange uh, with the Evangelical Formosan Church, from whom we lease uh, our facilities, and today uh, the exchange is for Cliff to be able to preach there. So he's going to take uh, over for Pastor Frank, who some of you know, and he's got the day off from preaching, and, and Cliff's going to share the word there. So while he's doing that, I'm going to share the word here. So my name's Tom, I'm an elder here at Bridges, and I have the privilege of um, leading us today in the scripture. So I'm gr- really glad to do that. Uh, where do you place your confidence. Where do you place your confidence? I remember some years ago being at a camp up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and I was participating in a ropes course. Um, Some of you know what ropes courses are. There's these obstacles with ropes and high elements and low elements. You climb, and there's basically uh, a lot of fear involved, (laughs) mainly because it's really high. And most people, uh, when you start getting high, uh, in the elevated sense, so, so it's, it gets kind of scary. So anyway, um, I, I mean, I've thought about what Don Lee's done up here, you know, climbing a ladder up here. It's, this, it's like he's his own personal ropes course right here, kind of doing this thing. Well, I had the opportunity with a, a group that I was with to climb a, a hundred-foot-tall tree. So it had these things stuck in it. So, you know, you're climbing up. That's about, I don't know, a hundred feet, maybe ten stories roughly, something like this. So you climb up to the top of the tree. It's called the centurion. I climb up to the top, and then at the top of the tree, they've stuck a plank that kind of goes out. So you're at the canopy of the forest, you're looking out, and then there's a plank. And the reason that the plank's there is because that's what's going to help you get down. Because at the end of the plank, five feet out, is a bar that's hanging in the middle of the air. And what you have to do is jump from the plank, grab the bar, hold it, and then you'd let go. Because at that point, you're just hanging 100 feet in the sky. And the only way down is to let go. Now, you're on belay, which is a mountaineering kind of rock climbing term. So I've got ropes around me, right? I get to the top. I, I, I'm actually, by the time I get to the top, I'm very tired. My legs are rubbery from climbing this 100-foot tree. I actually crawl on my hands and knees on the plank out to the edge. And I'm starting to evaluate my options for getting down. Climbing down, I don't think I could do it. Leaping to the bar, I don't think I can do it. And if I, even if I caught the bar letting go, that doesn't seem like a great option for me either. So I'm, I'm, you know, I know that there's these ropes here, but uh, at the bottom of the rope is a short English woman, about five foot two. 
And she's got the rope. And she starts to yell, You can do it, Tom. You can do it. And uh, I, I didn't feel like I could, uh, but she knew what she's doing, and she was forceful with that. You really can do it, Tom. And I, she knew that people like me needed someone like her yelling. And so I realize now I'm at the top. I'm pretty much, I need, I have to, uh, I'm stuck. So I, my, I'm, I have to rely on her and the confidence of this rope. And so um, I just basically, I just said, uh, kind of like, when I was in swim lessons, diving off the diving board for the first time. I'm just going to count to one, two, three. And Tom, when you say three, you are going to move, right? You're not going to think about it. So I said one, two, three, and I leapt off, and I, it, I actually grabbed the trapeze bar. I got it. And I'm like, yes! And then I thought, I have to let go. So, um, and your instinct is not actually to let go. It's to just hang on. So I did the same thing. One, two, three, boom. And then, and then right when I got to the bottom, whatever she does with the ropes, you can do it, Tom. I'm doing it too. So I got down and I just sort of like a feather landed on my backside right on the, right on the dirt, just like that. And I was like, I can't believe I did that. But just the point of the whole thing is about fear and this type of thing. But in the experience, my confidence had, was totally in the rope set up, and basically in this woman. So uh, I was shaking. Uh, 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 I wasn't completely shaken, but I was definitely shaking. Um, I tell that story because it's part of um, kind of a a doorway into the Scripture and the passage we're going to look at today. Because in life, there's lots of things uh, that cause us to be shaken. Um, Not things of our always of our own choice. I chose to climb that. I knew what I was getting into. Um, but there's things that threaten us. And um, if some of you read the Bible passages for this week, which I'm not going to recount, um, David's life, there was a lot happening in his life uh, that was not so awesome and uh, that uh, exposed the dysfunction of his family. And uh, there's a lot for him to feel shaken about and the people in his family. Um, death and grief, loss of any kind usually shakes us. Accepting new limitations that we encounter in our lives, long-held dreams that are unrealized or we realize won't ever be realized, um, lack of work, all of these things can shake us and cause us to be shaken. As a community, we can be shaken. Riverside has had a history of racial strife and division over the years, the community's been shaken. Even today, uh, there's division and injustices in our city which threaten to undo us and to actually shake us even more. Even in the midst of the church and the community, we can have shaking things happen. Even in our body, in the last four or five months, three of our members passing, in a sense, shakes us. The Psalms give us language that's suitable for engaging God in the shaking circumstances of life. We're going to look at a psalm today. They're poems, and they're not unlike art today, which give uh, voice to the full range of human emotion and human realities. No holds barred. They're real. They're raw. There's no pretense or pretending on the part of the psalmist. 
They acknowledge the full range of life's suffering, anger, hopes, disappointments. A basic and fundamental tenet at the core of all the Psalms is a, a continual, ongoing, deep and profound trust in God. What I like about the words of the Psalms is they're not trite, they're not pithy, they're not over-sentimentalized, they're just real and they're raw. The psalmist's words of trust and confidence in God emerge from the chaos and the disorientation of life and the stuff that goes on, and they're born out of the psalmist's real experience. There may be no other psalm that better expresses all of this better than Psalm 62. Now, there can be a danger in, in which we're going to read today, a danger in reading the Psalms of trust, uh, Psalms uh, in the Scripture, especially Psalms of trust, and that is that they can become over-spiritualized words. The danger is that they can disconnect with our real emotions. Um, they can inspire or uh, draw out from us our own real emotions, but when there's a disconnect, the danger is that we can uh, kind of use the words of the psalmist or feel compelled that the words of the psalmist are the spiritual thing to say or the right thing to say in the midst of suffering, loss, uh, you know, hardship. Um, and we don't ever want to use the words of the psalm to pretend. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. They can call forth the reality of what's true about us, but they can also get used by religious people. That's us in this room for the large part. And they can be used to help us pretend what's really going on inside. So I want to give us three invitations or postures to have as we look at the Psalms today. The first is, uh, let's be open to God, believe uh, that even as the song we sang, Spirit, fall afresh on us. God has a fresh word for us today. Be honest with yourself. Um, Let the words of the psalmist call forth what's really true in you, not something that's pretending, and then be curious to learn. So let's use these postures today as we come to to the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 62. So pull out your bulletin. The Psalm's printed here. Let's read this Psalm. Um, Some associate this Psalm with the life of David and the particulars of what was happening in the readings that some of us in the church are doing week to week. Some of the uh, situations of his life, some associate this Psalm with the circumstances in the readings from this week. It's conjecture. We don't really know. But read with me, or let me read, but listen along as I read the words of the psalmist. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assail a person? Will you batter your victim, all of you, as you would a leaning wall or a tottering fence? Their only plan is to bring down a person of prominence. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my deliverance and my honor, my mighty rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God's a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. 
and steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord, for you repay to all according to their work. What's the setting of this? It's obvious if we look at the text that the psalmist is under attack. We look at verses 3 and 4 specifically. The attack may be physical. Certainly it is verbal. Uh, He is being taunted and there's deceit in the words of the people. Um, The author is probably a person of authority, perhaps a king. We don't know if it's written by King David. Most of the psalms, many are attributed to David, but it's not clear that he actually penned all of the psalms. But whoever the author is, he is a person of authority. His enemies are telling lies. They're speaking dishonestly. They're being hypocritical. It may have been written possibly as a devotional. Some kind of a devotional that was written privately for private use by the person who wrote this, but then adapted later for use in a worship context. And the clue in the text for us that it might have been adapted later for a worship context is in uh, verse 8 where there's a definitive shift in the psalmist's words because he's now speaking out to a public setting. In verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Many of the psalms were in fact used in the corporate worship experience for the life of the people of Israel. So, possibly written by a, a person on their own, but then used later in a worship setting. The impact of the, of the attack on him seems pretty severe. Like a besieging army, assaulting and battering the weakening walls of a city, the psalmist describes his experience. Like walls getting pushed in, walls crumbling. He says, I'm like a tottering fence. Um, Can you relate to that analogy? I love that analogy, a tottering fence. It's almost like when you're weak and you're being shaken, it's like if another breeze of adversity blows through my life, I'm just going to tip over, right? I mean, that's kind of the image that we have from the psalmist here. Here's some words from an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. He says this about the Psalms. They don't emerge out of situations of equilibrium. Equilibrium, that's when things are in balance. People are driven to such poignant prayer and song as found in the Psalter by experiences of dislocation. They are events that are at the edge of humanness. It is experiences of being overwhelmed, nearly destroyed, and then surprisingly given life that empower us to pray and to sing. The words of the psalmist come out of the raw realities of life. That's why I love the psalms so much. In fact, in the raw realities of my life, I use the psalms when I don't have words to say, and I appropriate them for my own use to be able to speak to God and articulate what's going on inside me. Well, we're going to look further at this psalm and see what it has to say about not being shaken and having confidence in God. The psalm, I think, is broken into two pieces. The first piece goes verses 1 to 7, and it's a personal testimony. Jim gave us a personal testimony of an experience at school. He talked about his experience and how God was in that. The second half of the psalm, I think it's, there's a shift in verse 8 where it moves from personal testimony to public appeal. So that's how I think it's broken down, and we're going we're gonna to look at the first half now. The first half is about this personal testimony. Repetition in Scripture usually signals something important is going on. The centerpiece of this psalm is this double refrain that begins in verse 1 and 2 and then goes to verse 5 and 6. It's this refrain, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall never be shaken. It starts as a testimony. It ends kind of with an, an exhortation here. 
Um, confidence in God. Let's just sit for a moment with the confidence in God that comes when it's, it's demonstrated in stillness. That's what he's talking about here. A confidence that's it's expressed or demonstrated in the stillness of his soul. His, his confidence is it's, it's emerging out of an experience of stillness before the living God. Now, soul here, it simply means his total being, just kind of his person. When his whole person sits in silence, uh, it's a picture of stillness. In fact, the verb waiting, it describes, it, another way of using it is to describe stillness. That's how it's translated in some other places. Um, so as opposed to speaking in the midst of the hardship that he's in, or having frenetic movement, or trying to work this thing out and getting a plan, we see stillness. That's his approach. The verb for waiting here against stillness, often used in relationship to having an experience of God in a significant way that causes one to just kind of be stupefied or awestruck, where you just kind of stand and just are like, wow. Um, Imagine you're an Israelite, your back is up against the Red Sea, the Egyptian army's in your face coming at you, and then the waters part. You cross, and the Egyptians are swallowed up in the water. You could be loud and demonstrative, woo, about that, or you could be like this, which is what the author writes in Exodus 15 and 16. When the people saw the arm of the Lord at the Red Sea, they were as still as stones in awe and wonder. And that word still is, this, is the word here for wait in our text. My soul alone waits. It is in stillness before God. It's in stillness before God that the psalmist engages new layers and depths of God's character in the midst of his circumstances. If you're like me, um, you want to experience God in the depth of most depth of intimacy that could be experienced. You long for that. And like in any relationship, uh, that requires uh, paying attention and listening. Um, Silence is a prerequisite to hearing. And among other places, uh, God does speak in silence. Here's what one author, Dallas Willard, says. He says, generally it's much more important to cultivate the quiet, inward space of a constant listening than to always be approaching God for a specific direction. And I think for us evangelical Christians, uh, we've got the seek God for direction thing down, but our spirituality oftentimes lacks in that stillness, that quiet, what he calls here, that quiet inward space of constant listening. That's what's happening for the psalmist here. He's come before God. He's having an experience with God. The stillness is helping draw him into a deeper place with the Lord. There's a lot more that we could talk about in terms of stillness, given the fact that we live in, in Western culture. So, where stillness, quiet, silence is not a fundamental part of our life for many of us. Um, so I'll just pause and ask, where might you cultivate moments, if not periods of stillness in your life, for you to engage God. Here's one way I'm trying to do that right now, and that's in the midst of my day, in the midst of transitions, off a phone call or a video conference or moving from one topic to the next, I pause and I just spend a minute. I thank God for maybe a conversation, a person, a situation, something I don't know what to do. I lift it up to the Lord and then I move on. 
it's small, seems trivial. For me, it's actually pretty significant to have those moments of stillness. The psalm goes forward, and there's, I think, uh, a confidence in God that's anchored in experience that we see the psalmist having. And he uses, um, uh, he talks about that his that salvation is, is, is happening. God is his rock and fortress, a refuge. And he uses these three images, which I want to touch on briefly, because this is where he is experiencing God, and he's finding words to describe who God is for him. Uh, it's very personal. One repeated word in this text is the word my. So he's speaking out of his own experience. Um, okay, So he's using you know, my soul, uh, my fort, God, you're my fortress. It's a very personal type of experience for him. Um, he borrows these three images, and they're images that are, would be very commonplace for the people of Israel. So they're words that are not unfamiliar to them. Um, let's look at the first one. He alone is my rock, he says. It's an image of security. Um, imagine uh, someone being pursued in the desert. Uh, Imagine David or, or someone that's being pursued in the desert and an outcropping of rocks appears uh, on the horizon and they get into this outcropping of rocks. It actually becomes a place of security. There's possibly water in those rocks. It's a hiding place. It's a solid foundation. People would recognize that it is uh, a safe place. It provides shade. Um, it's used 77 times in the Old Testament. It's a very common word about God. God is a rock, a place of safety, a place of provision, a place of security. Um, he uses the image of fortress, which uh, I grabbed a picture uh, uh, of, a, of, a for, of a fortress. It's a, it's a stronghold, uh, a place that's impenetrable, has thick walls. In ancient Israel, they often make double walls, five-foot thick walls. I mean, this is a, a place that you, uh, uh, you know, a place of protection. You can't get in, so to speak. Um, this is a picture of a fortress that was built in the 14th century. It's in Turkey and um, near uh, Ephesus. And it is, it's a great image for us of what, of what a fortress might look like. He's saying God is this place of protection for me. He says later in the psalm that God is a place of refuge. That's an image of safety. So an image of security, an image of protection, an image of safety. Um, the place of refuge is very interesting in the Old Testament um, there was, uh, God provided these places of refuge, cities around ancient Israel that if someone committed a crime and then the clan or tribe of the person against whom the, the crime was committed seeks retribution or revenge, you, this person could travel to a city and it was called a place of refuge. And once they got inside that, it was a sanctuary and they couldn't be touched. And the people that were attacking, they would stop at the walls of that city because they knew it was a place of refuge. And it's a place where the person could be safe until they sorted out what really happened and some judgment could be levied. Um, In Numbers uh, 35, it describes this. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, so that a slayer who kills a person without intent may flee there. Psalmist is saying here in this situation, as he's being assailed by adversaries, is that God will be my refuge. He will be the place in which I come and bring all of my concerns and the realities of my life, and it's a safe place for me to be present in all of my fears, 
all of my hopes, all of my suffering before the Lord. The confidence of the psalmist is also expressed in a, in a pretty significant conviction. And he says this conviction uh, at, um, at the end of this first, um, this first section here uh, at verse uh, 2. I shall never be shaken. That's a very profound word. I shall never be shaken. Um, how can this be? I thought of it as uh, the image that came to my mind. Well, first, my Im- the image was about shaking. So I thought of where we live and earthquakes. And I thought of the last time I had a water heater replaced and uh, the guy strapping that thing in like, you know, this is not going to go anywhere. And you can have a 7.0 on the Richter scale. This water heater will not come loose from where he strapped it in. Um, and that is the picture I think I had of not being shaken. Um, and for the psalmist, um, that is the picture, that, that sense of solidity is what's happening for him when he thinks of these images of who God is in the midst of suffering. Um, that word not being shaken, it could also be not being moved. Psalm 16 the psalmist uses the same word, but it's translated, I'm not, I won't be moved. He says, I keep the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I won't be moved. Right? And that's the image of that water here. It's not moving. Or Psalm 96, say among the nations, the Lord's king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. So it won't be shaken. Um, probably the more, a more um, literal translation of that is something that's not going to get moved. So the psalmist is not going to get moved. In the fall of 2012, I got an email. And in my role as a campus minister, I, I uh, give leadership to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship's work in Southern California. We're working on 100, we're seeking to reach 140 colleges and universities with the gospel. And I work with a staff team of 120 other campus ministers. We work on about 50 campuses in Southern California. And I got an email from the campus pastor at Fresno State. And in the, in the email, he said that the campus life office was not recognizing the chapter's constitution and was not allowing the club to register. So the organization I work with, there's clubs, religious clubs on campuses that seek to, we seek to build witnessing communities of, of students and faculty on these campuses. And we participate in the life of the community of the campus as a club. Universities have hundreds of clubs. And in the fall of 2012 at Fresno State, they were scrutinizing our constitution and saying, you actually cannot register with this constitution as a club because um, you're requiring that the religious leaders of your club uh, agree to a set of religious creeds or beliefs. And you actually need to have uh, your club be open to anyone to be in a role of leadership. Within six months, seven chapters across California were derecognized. Uh, and one year later, uh, all the InterVarsity chapters on the 23 Cal State campuses from the top of the state to the bottom were derecognized. Because in our Constitution, we um, had the conviction that religious groups should have, be open to anyone to participate, but in terms of leadership, religious groups should have religious leaders that have a set of religious convictions to be able to lead. That if one is going to teach someone how to seek God and pray, they should believe that God exists. 
if someone's going to read the Scripture and teach someone how to study Scripture, they should believe um, that it's the, the Word of God if they're going to seek to learn how to follow God. Um, the universities uh, had an, issue, an ordinance or a, an executive order that had been uh, enacted in the fall of uh, uh, 2011. And it said that uh, all groups needed to be open not only in membership, but in leadership to anyone on the campus, irregardless of belief or conviction. Um, in 2013 and 14, we were interacting with the, the, the chancellor's office, and we had different proposals we were making to work with this, and they were all rejected. Um, and so at that time, then all of our fellowships were uh, derecognized. And what that meant for us is that a, a club on campus then was no longer part of the campus life community. You, you couldn't be a part of club or events on campus, and you couldn't use facilities on the campus. All of our groups used the use, used rooms on campus for meetings. And now, you were no longer recognized as a club. You could not, no longer use a room for a meeting. But, since the Rotary Club can use a room on campus by paying money, you're just like them now. You're not recognized as a campus organization. You're an off-campus thing, and you can pay to use rooms. So last week, we were recognized... You could use rooms for meetings from anywhere from 20 to UC San Diego has 500 students in its fellowship. You could use the rooms, but now this week you're derecognized. You can pay, and the pay to use rooms is hundreds and even thousands of dollars, money that we uh, didn't have. Um, the campus staff and the students felt stigmatized, marginalized, and um, uh, fearful about how to go forward. For myself. Um, I felt shaken. I realized I'm now entering into a terrain that was new to me, leadership that was being required of me that uh, was all new. I wasn't sure uh, what was going to be required and how I was going to do this. And one email I wrote, I just said, I, my emotion is I feel torn up inside. I feel torn up that um, there's this obstacle. Students are, um, the gospel's being limited. I felt like a tottering fence. How would the gospel go forth if students have to meet on, off campus? Students aren't going to walk from a dorm to a church down the street. Uh, it's not, it's not going to happen. Uh, where would the funds come from to pay for meeting rooms? I felt that. I felt shaken by that. Was there any course of action that could be taken since we'd been rebuffed by the chancellor's office? Or was this now the new normal for here on out? And this is the way it was going to be. I talked to LA Times reporters who had questions. I talked to alumni who disagreed with our position and defended why we were taking this stance. I had other colleagues doing the same. But I did feel shaken. Um, here's some lessons that the Lord gave me about how, uh, how I moved from, being, uh, from shaking to an out of shakenness. Um, number one was that God was the rock on which our witness to the university rested. God and his purposes were bigger than our strategy of meeting on campus. I realized how much uh, stock I put in a particular strategy to meet on campus. And yet, InterVarsity sister movements around the world, because of political situations in other countries, they've never had access to meet on campus in rooms at a university. And yet, the gospel has gone forth in significant and powerful ways. And so I learned that I uh, had put a lot of stock in a particular way of doing things and that God was bigger than that. He was the rock on which the mission rested. God was my fortress. One thing that he protected my heart from 
as a, as a, a fortress was he, he guarded my heart from bitterness. Um, I think that there was a tendency in my heart to see the university as a battlefield, not our mission field. But instead, he expanded my heart and my colleagues and students in deeper love for the university in its lostness and its need for a viable, dynamic witness of Jesus. And as I, um, as I sat with that, I realized the university is not our battlefield. It's our mission field. And we come with a heart expanded in affection and love for this place that he's called us to preach and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. So God was my rock. He was a fortress. Um, I poured out my heart in a new way to God is my third lesson, that caused me to engage God in a deeper and more profound way. He was my refuge because he provided a safe place for me to bring all of what was happening inside of me. I learned to lament, which is sort of a crying out from the depths of your being about what is not the way it's supposed to be. And I was able to bring that to God in a way that I hadn't before. I was tutored by some of my colleagues who were more practiced in lament. Uh, and they, in their church tradition, lament was a deeper part of their experience, and it called me uh, forth. But God was a refuge because it was a safe place before him to just be raw and real. And I experienced uh, less shakingness when I was able to be true and honest before God in the safety of his love. And then the psalmist here talks about God being salvation. I learned, fourthly, about God being my salvation. Um, as I prayed with colleagues, um, he, he, uh, he gave us uh, ideas. So uh, if you can't have a table on campus as a registered club to invite students to talk with you about what you're about, uh, maybe there's another way to do it. And so I think I have a picture of how God met us in sort of a saving kind of way with an idea. Why don't you stick a banner on the back of a backpack and walk around campus? You know, so why do you think people need to come up to a table? Uh, just stick the banner on and walk around and, and talk to people. And so that's what we did. And if they're having a club fair and there's a bunch of tables, well, what would it be like if a bunch of those banner people just kind of stood at the end of the row? You know, sort of a mobile table. So, um, um, but God, he he did provide in strategy some new directions that was sort of a, a saving kind of thing that allowed the gospel to go forth, a depth of conviction and creativity for our students that did not immobilize them, that kept the mission at the center and did not let this throw them off track. Um, and I'll say a little bit more later, but also what God did in terms of his saving work is that he raised up from an, in an unexpected way uh, uh, an Esther, the Old Testament story of Esther is about a woman who's in a place of power and she's, she's, uh, con- she's challenged that maybe for such a time as this, she's in this place. And God raised up a person in the chancellor's office that became an Esther that actually broke open a way forward for us. Where in your life today do you want or need God to be a rock, a fortress, a place of refuge? When we end... This time and into worship, I'm going to invite us to think about the places in our own lives where rock, fortress, and refuge are what we would want God to be in a more real, tangible way. The psalm shifts in verse 8 from testimony to public appeal. 
there's a call that the psalmist makes to put confidence in God. He says, trust in Him at all times, O people. He says, put your confidence in God. And in this call to put confidence in God, he's inviting the people to take the truths they've experienced about God being a rock, being a refuge, a fortress, and to lean into that. He says, put your trust in him at all times. He then says, pour out your heart. Pour out your heart. It's, a, it's another call. Notice the, tra- the contrast from verse 1. The soul waits in silence, but here he's saying, come and pour it all out before the Lord. Pour out what's in you. Uh, just spill out the feelings, the emotions that are inside of you and bring them before the Lord. Um, I think there's a couple of requirements for us to be able to be doing this. One is that um, to pour out your heart, you've got to be self-aware of what's going on in your heart. So if you're a middle-aged white guy like me, sometimes that's hard to do, to know what's going on inside. What are my emotions? What are my feelings? But it's out of self-awareness that we can engage God with the fullness of what it is that's happening inside. I think self-awareness then requires stillness. I love that the stillness theme in this passage draws forth, I think it draws forth self-awareness. It's in the stillness that God helps us pay attention to what we're feeling. Um, One author says, much of what happens in solitude is happening under the surface, and God's doing it. Just as most of what is happening in the ocean is under the surface, or with a seed is under the ground, what's happening to the human soul in solitude is happening under the surface where only God knows about it. It's in solitude that we get in touch with this. And then I think stillness requires courage. For many of us, to be still before God, it's in that stillness that the realities of fears, hopes unrealized, all come to to the surface. Um, And we need courage to engage those things when we slow down and stop. I think the psalmist's solution to that is in verse 8 at the end where he says, God's our refuge. A place of safety where we're not under attack, where we can be true and honest and open before the Lord. Um, it's sort of like uh, what Hannah, in the, in the, uh, a woman who brought her, her longings for a, um, a child to, to the Lord. She wrote uh, in 1 Samuel one fifteen. it says, Hannah... Pre- uh, um, when she was confronted about uh, what she was doing in the temple, uh, praying to the Lord, she said, No, Lord, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a deeply troubled person. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman. I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation all the time. Um, Hannah's a great picture of someone pouring out their heart before the Lord. Um, I'm going to give us opportunity to pour out our heart in some ways as we end in worship here shortly as well. That is a spilling out what's really happening inside. And it's, it's really um, it's in the place where we can pour out what's true about us that God meets us in his power. At the end of the psalm, the psalmist gives a warning. He says, don't put confidence in other things. Uh, don't put confidence in other things. Um, those of lowest state are but a breath, those of highest state are a delusion, and the balances they go up, they're lighter than a breath. Don't put confidence in extortion or vain hopes in robbery. If riches increase, don't set your heart on them. He's basically saying there's a ton of things you could put your, put your faith in, a ton of things in which you could give your heart. They're vain hopes. They won't realize 
the kind of things you're looking for. They are worthless. Don't put your hope in those things. I'm not going to spend time talking and sort of pulling out what those are. I, I do want, um, I want to return to this story, what happened in the university, because for me, where my hope got placed uh, most readily was in a strategy. Um, in the context of the situation we were in, my instinct was to kick into planning. My instinct was to kick into, well, let's get a plan. Let's figure out what we need to do. And that's not wrong. Strategy is not sin. What happened for me, and was a te- there was a temptation to over-rely on strategy. To over-rely on strategy to the, at the expense of the power of God. I met with the mayor and a local businessman who the governor had appointed here from Riverside to be on the board of trustees for the Cal State system. We met, had a meeting. We were able to meet with the chancellor. We sought meetings with um, elect, other elected officials to come up with a, 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 maybe a legislative solution to the situation. We met with different lawyers looking for a legal solution. We met with different alumni that they could bring pressure in a political way to the university. We met with donors about a financial solution. We came up with solutions and strategies on campus to keep the mission at the forefront. All those were right things, but I constantly was in this temptation to rely on those things to be the ultimate answer, strategy. I'll figure it out. I'll come up with a plan, and that would be the way that we would solve this. And then I got a letter from a colleague. My colleague is um, uh, in Mexico, she has my job in northern Mexico, Alejandra. And let me see, I have a, somewhere, I have a quote from her. So Alejandra's in her late 20s. She directs uh, InterVarsity's sister movement, everything in northern Mexico, Tijuana down to the middle of the country. Um, she found out what was happening. And she wrote a letter, and at the end of the letter, she wrote uh, these words that... Um, kind of righted me. If there was any shakiness going on where I was over-relying on strategy, I appreciated these words. She said, trust God in the midst of all. Empower students and trust less on the resources you may have or had. God is faithful and he will continue to do awesome things among you because this is his work. May God bless you in this semester and that you may see his working among you in the small things or the more apparently limited opportunities, that you may be able to discern how the Spirit is moving and how Christ may be faithfully proclaimed and testified. Hmm. Alejandra, a woman who's placed her confidence in God, who knows what it means to not be shaken. Her words pierced my heart and I think righted me from any shakenness that I or my colleagues would have. As the story ends, uh, there was a person that God worked in a salvific kind of way to bring an answer. And that is someone who was in a, the general counsel for the university. He had just hired on. He was his last tour as an attorney. He's in his late 60s. He was going to work with a Christian ministry. But instead, he hired on to work with as the chief legal counsel for the Cal State University system. And God used him to find a way to redefine what the word open meant. What does it mean for a group to be open to all students for leadership? And we were able to work and find a way to have agreement that allowed us to use religious criteria for uh, bringing students who are religious to be religious leaders in this religious club. 
And God worked bringing salvation in a sense. He brought a solution and a way forward. I don't know if this man retires, if something will shift or change, but for now, all of our groups in the fall of 2015 were uh, reinstated and re-recognized on all the campuses in the Cal State system. Praise be to God about that. Um, Psalmist ends, and as I invite the worship team forward, he ends here with what I call age-old wisdom. He uses a phrase that says something about... um, once God's spoken, twice I've heard this. And what he does is he takes two of the most profound and fundamental truths about God in the Old Testament, that God has power and that God has steadfast love, and he brings them forth at the end of the psalm, and he calls the people to see these truths about God. He has power and he has steadfast love. Steadfast love is a word that means that God breaks in with his love into concrete, physical, actual ways into the world of Israel and his people. It's not a love that's out here. It's a love that breaks in in practical ways. And God says, the psalmist says, in conclusion, this is who this God is. That's a rock, a fortress, a refuge, our salvation. He's the God of power and a God who brings steadfast love to all his people. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward. We're going to sing and um, I want to pray for us that God might... um, Speak to us in three particular ways. One is in the area of stillness. Where do you need to cultivate a place of stillness in your life that you might engage and encounter God in a way that's new and fresh and deep? Secondly, where is it in your life that this image of a rock or a fortress or a refuge might strike you or have some meaning and be um, significant for you this morning? And then lastly, this whole idea of pouring out one's heart. Um, imagine a pitcher of water being poured out. Um, Do you long for that kind of intimacy with God that your heart could be poured out to Him and that you could hear Him speak to you in the midst of hardship, suffering, the realities, raw realities of one's life? He's big enough to handle all of our complaints. He's big enough to handle the, the realities of our lives. And today I think He's inviting maybe some of us to be in that posture of pouring out. I'm going to let the worship team uh, lead us and allow, um, as we sing, allow God to draw forth uh, from you what you need to say and be before God.